Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movie, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. Allison. Yeah. You just went, you just came back from an exciting adventure. Yeah. And I think that you're going to have to tell me and our special guest today, Mark O'Connell, who is the biographer, writer for shows like Star Trek, The Next Generation, and Deep Space Nine, uh, lecturer and teacher and all around weird guy, but excellent author. Right. And uh, I, welcome to the show again, Mark. This is the guy <laughs> who... I mean, we should have known better growing up. I mean, we, <laughs> my parents knew his parents and everybody was friends in the community and everything like that. But we could have had our own Scooby gang just I, like from early on. It's a tragedy. That That's <laughs> true. It we, is. Live, we live I, what? Less than a mile from each other. We grew up I less know. than a mile from each other. So close and yet so yeah. far away. That's just what really bums me out like the lost opportunities there yeah. we could have had it's just a childhood of, of uh, paranormal fun <laughs> we could have but the thing is since i'm so much younger not that much but i'm i'm younger so i've been always the tag along that everybody uh, wanted to get rid of i don't of. think it's changed that like, much so you guys would be in an adventure like oh let's go like all right let's go on the adventure like oh <laughs> i have to bring my little brother like my parents said that if we go in the haunted house <laughs> i gotta bring mike and that would be the thing like i and then i'd be like lost in the like I, the I lost one who like... always has to be rescued and stuff so well you guys can you guys could <laughs> fantasize about a cool adventure i'm fantasizing you about been the being bait. Like oh the loser. Oh yeah. Right. There's nothing <laughs> even like a lot better page. than than um you know like a, a little a little flaxen haired cherub child like you were right the little ringlets the little blonde ringlets that's, that's I mean true. come I, on that's just like right out of uh <laughs> right out of that that movie the time machine you know those those things would come up from underground oh, yeah. and take those little cherub children. Yeah. Oh yeah. The, yeah. yeah. The LOI of Big Bend. Or the LOI and the Morlocks of Big Bend. When we had a kid hanging around with us that we wanted to get rid of, we would just say, hey, go tell your mom she wants you. It never worked. <laughs> it never worked, but we loved, we loved saying it. So that's what, that's what we'd be doing with you, Mike. Hey, Mike, go tell your mom she wants you. Uh, and I'd have been like, mom. <laughs> oh, man. Well, okay. All right. So that's true. So we're glad to have Mark back. And the thing is, I was yeah. teasing the fact that you just went on an adventure today, Allison, but you absolutely did. And so can you tell us a little bit about uh, what you were working on just about an hour ago? Sure. Because it, it really, I think, um, is going to coincide with some of the things we're going to talk about today. So I have documented all the 2011 and 2017 Chicagoland uh, Mothman sightings for my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Mothman. Yeah, don't forget and, the plug. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh -huh. <laughs> Got to get that in. I, I'm like, <laughs> I've hit the crucial 300 subscribers, Mark. So Oof, that's just right. awesome. really big for me. You know, maybe yeah. I could get like two more or something after the show airs. I, I'd be thrilled. Next stop for you is PewDiePie famous. It's going to be yeah, PewDiePie. I, Every every time somebody hits that subscribe button, it just gives me that warm, fuzzy feeling. I mean, <laughs> just think of you're controlling me, you guys out there. Uh, so just hit that button. I'll love it. Um, anyway, so I thought that any extraordinary event like that should have an investigator that, that goes to 
every site and documents it so that people can see where this, you know, strange, like eight, nine foot tall, uh, gargoyle type creature with a wingspan of 10 feet has, has supposedly been seen. So people could, you know, make a determination, uh, for themselves, whether they think it, it could have been spite, uh, spotted, uh, so many times on like Lakeshore Drive, for example. Um, now today I went to, you know, a location that I thought was a little bit more plausible. It was in Woodstock, Illinois, where my favorite uh, paranormal uh, romantic comedy, Groundhog Day, was filmed. So uh, we were familiar uh, with the location and we heard that on February 22nd. Uh, as reported by uh, Emily and Tobias Whalen on the Singular Fortean blog. Did you run into Ned Ryerson? I, I down there. <laughs> Trying to sell you insurance. If I did, I was gonna punch him in the throat. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, and I didn't run into Tobias either, so I, there was no throat punching necessary. No, oh, I'm just kidding. I just um, one. <laughs> we 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 do see eye to eye more more than that, uh, Tobias and I. So anyway, he put up a report about um, the sighting that. Uh, transpired supposedly on February 22nd at 8 p.m. at night where uh, there was a driver uh, re- on his way home uh, from the Walgreens nearby and uh, he was driving down the road past the uh, Dewfield Sanctuary, which is Dewfield, Dewfield Pond Sanctuary, McHenry um, County, and it is a beautiful like marsh area. And he reported that, you know, silhouetted by, uh, there is a, a light there um, right by the entrance. Um, he saw this eight foot, eight to nine foot tall um, gargoyle type creature with wings, of course, uh, but also like gray to black fur run across the street. And um, so I wanted to see, like, what was this location? And then the witness did take some daytime photos as well. Um, thought they found a, a strange footprint in the snow. So I wanted to see what footprints I could find, too. And so I went around the area and did find that there were... It is an area for um, for animals. Uh, I found deer prints and uh, I found rabbit prints. And then I also found a lot of dog prints because that's a popular uh, spot for people to walk their dogs. And there Did you see any, any, any nine-foot gargoyle prints there? No. Like, okay. So the one thing I did find is, of course, there are human boot prints next to these dog prints. And that... Um, uh, there's a photo of the strange print on um, Singular Fortean blog again, um, and and then that um, in the caption it talks about like some some overprinting that may have been happening. Like um, you know, there's clearly some boot prints there and some dog prints, and you know, dog prints within boot prints, and then there seems to be you know kind of a long elongated print. I mean, it didn't seem very compelling to me because there's all these prints around it. And then that's really what I saw when I went to the location is, is there's so many prints around and there were boot prints as well that looked really huge. And, uh, we've had a lot of thawing and freezing and which can, you know, cause the, the, um, prints to elongate and distort. So I took some pictures of that. I also went to the little pond area 
And uh, we did go onto the ice just a little bit because there were some cool prints there of big birds. Well, you think that if, if it can support the weight of a nine-foot gargoyle, obviously it can support your weight. <laughs> I know, right? But but it wasn't running that way. It was running the opposite way towards the houses, which seems weird to me why it would want to go that way. He had to get home. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, he's he, he's he's in the little blue one with the picket fence. I don't know. But uh, anyway, so... I. I documented that uh, there are big birds in the area. Um, we talked to a dog walker going by, and he told us that um, he had um, not heard anything um, about uh, that sighting. And he lives right there. He lives right next to it. He pointed to where his house was. And he said he had not heard nothing about the sighting or, or nothing about any creature sightings. Uh, and he, he said, though, that, you know, we talked about the type of waterfowl that would be there. And he said that, that the uh, sandhill cranes were back, which, which do have a huge wingspan and are quite tall, not nine feet, but, um, you know, maybe could be mistaken, uh, in, you know, certain conditions. Uh, but, uh, they are, they are already back from their migration. I think, I think personally that they should go back down South because it's too cold. They're a little little legs are just going to snap right off. Right. But um, they, they are back in the area, he said. So so that's possibly what uh, the footprints uh, that I saw uh, could also have been a turkey. They have similar footprints uh, that I've seen um, or like a flock of turkeys, not just one, because uh, there were a lot, a lot of prints on the, the frozen pond there. Um, anyway, I also interestingly uh, need to see if I can find some uh, newspaper articles on this, but the most interesting thing that I found today is that in the 70s, there were reports um, of monster sightings just down the street. I mean, not very far at all. At um, It was called the, the Bull Valley Monster, and it was more of a Bigfoot type creature. But I thought that that was interesting, that there was that flap in the 70s and i want to see if there's any connection or, or just any like fun uh, newspaper articles like well he did say furry so that. maybe bigfoot grew wings number one yeah and and, and some people on um there's a, a woodstock community group that i became a member of <laughs> even though yes i had to lie i, I didn't right, actually grow up she's not woodstock actually she's not actually a fib 90, 1975 but uh, linda godfrey clued me in on that they were talking about it on there so so i i uh got access and then was able to communicate with some of the people because, you know, some one person thought that it might've been, um, a relative of his that, that, uh, lives near there, you know, just drunk and running across the street with his coat. <laughs> but, um, no. that, that proved, I, I did have him check and that proved just to be a joke. It wasn't actually uh, confirmation that it was a hoax, um, but uh, they are talking about it on the community forum. So I, I thought that was interesting, and that's where I, I found out about the the Bull Valley sightings. So um, from the nineteen seventies. Yeah, yeah. So I'll be reporting more because um, somebody was saying on their on the community group that they used to troll that area looking for the Bull Valley monster. Pretty cool. Well, I, I agree, and the thing is that remind you know. Uh, when you're going into it, originally I wanted you to talk about this because while we're we have Mark on, we want to discuss Jalen Hynek and Project Blue Book, and you know the new TV show coming out. And the second episode of the TV show actually deals with the Flatwoods monster. 
Well, I mean, the other point of relevance here is is that, you know, the Mothman, whose uh, most famous sightings um, were 1966 to 1967, were uh, the successor of the Flatwoods monster, which is also spotted in West Virginia in 1952. And, you know, I don't know if the two things are related, but just when you look at the depiction of each monster, there's a lot of similarities there. You know, the shadowy uh, hulking form with the, the large red glowing eyes. So, uh, I yeah, I think, think there's relevance um, here to... Um, what is going on on Project Blue Book because the first, uh, second episode actually uh, talked about the Flatwoods monster or used the Flatwoods monster as the the backdrop at least for the narrative and just wanted to talk to to Mark about that because um, Mark you you just you just done so much work um, in looking into Jalen and Hynek and the truth behind Project Blue Book. And we, we want to get your perspective on, you know, that new History Channel series and what you think about it. Boy, where to start? <laughs> yeah. Right. I, well, you can start with when you were doing the research for the book, like the, in the Flatwoods Monster, um, one of the kids did pee his pants. So <laughs> did you have a <laughs> Did you have a chance to talk to that kid? I actually, and be I, like, actually I actually tracked down those pants. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. All Actually, right. no, I didn't even touch on the Flatwood Monster story at all in my book. Um, and I don't, off the top of my head, I don't even recall whether Heineck was, had any involvement in that or mm. much involvement aside from looking over the case file at Blue Book. Right. When did it happen? When did, when did that case happen again? So that one happened September 12th, 1952. All right. So that would have been right around the time of the Washington the Washington DC sightings. Oh right. Um, yeah. 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 That was that was a that was a big year. It was a big year. Was Heineck even at the air like working with the Air Force and stuff like well, that at he, that time, or is well, he already he, passed it? He was, but he wasn't being sent out into the field at all until that didn't happen until nineteen fifty three. That was his first time actually being sent out into the field to do an actual on the ground um UFO investigation, and that was in that took place in Rapid City, South Dakota, and Bismarck, North Dakota. So Flatwoods Monster, if that was the date, October '52, Heineck would still have just been a desk jockey for Project Blue Book. He would have just been reporting to his office at Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and they would they would dump a stack of UFO reports in front of him, and he would spend the day going through those reports. And checking the descriptions against his astronomical charts, and you know, and be checking as many off as he could as misidentification of an astronomical object. Now, when when they did it in the in the Blue Book TV show, it turned out to be an right. owl, right? It turned out to be a great horned owl sitting on top of a tree, scaring <laughs> scaring the little kids. Right, and actually, the actor playing John Hynek, like he had to bulk up because he had to wrestle the owl. <laughs> Because that's how close to the truth they want to get. Because J. Allen Hynek was known as a great wrestler of aliens, and he'd take them on like <laughs> Captain Kirk style. <laughs> you did it all. He'd make have- a rudimentary lathe and, and take them on, you know, like a gladiator. I ha- <laughs> I have- a gladiator. I have to tell you right up front, I've only watched the first two and a half episodes of the show. Oh, yeah, and that's fine. I mean, I think... I'm laughing so hard, I just can't even watch it anymore. Right. Well, (laughs) I think 
Yeah, I, I think the most important thing about having you on and, and where it, it kind of uh, coincides with our approach is that you want to stay factually based, and, and so do we. I mean, we love the paranormal. We love the unexplained. But, you know, my whole thing with my um, search for Mothman is I just wanted to find a monster. And that's... <laughs> That's why I documented all the reports that I did. But then in doing so, like you were saying with Heineck, you know, checking off all his uh, astronomical uh, charts and, and whatnot, you know, I wanted to see if the accounts matched up to the environment, if yeah. the account matched up to, you know, what the phase of the moon was or, you know, what type of buildings were reported around there and, and stuff like that. And I found a lot of inconsistencies. And then I feel like, you know, in reporting that I got a bit of the, um, swamp grass, swamp gas treatment. I got uh. a swamp gas treatment, not in that, and, and I don't think this was true of Heineck either. Not, I'm not saying that extraordinary things don't happen. What happens to UFO people? What happens to UFO people? Do they call it swamp gaslighting? <laughs> nice. that, uh, so, can we coin that? Yeah, so we, uh, it's going like to be Yeah, we, we got to take responsibility for that one. Um, but yeah, I, I just mean I felt like I was getting the, the swamp gas treatment because – I, I'm just reporting what I see and, and I, yeah, I want to believe, but I, I'm not gonna just fudge it. I mean, I'm not gonna just, if something doesn't smell right, I mean, I'm going to say so. And that doesn't mean I think everything is swamp gas. It's just that sometimes it is, or sometimes yeah, it is exactly. hoaxing. And how can you know what's real if you don't apply that scientific rigor? So I think that's, you know, where, um, our approaches meet. Oh, yeah. How do you think, Mark, that the portrayal of uh, that um, Aiden Gillen's portrayal, I mean, first of all, it's Littlefinger from Game of Thrones so he, he, and Carsetti from The Wire. So he does have a, a pedigree as, you know, as, as a pretty cool actor. Uh -huh. um, but, you know, you've, you've written about like descriptions of him, spent, you know, years of your life doing research into it. And how do you think the stuff that he said in the TV show kind of matches up to the portrayal you, that you have found when you researched the real man? Well, the, the big moment for me was in the, the first ep episode of the show, there's a scene where uh, the character of Dr. Hynek is talking to the character of Mrs. Hynek, and he's explaining to her why he accepted this offer to uh, work for the Air Force on this UFO study project. And he's, and he says, well, there are three reasons. Number one, I can continue teaching at Ohio state. That was important to me. He said, number two, it's good extra money. We could use the money. And he said, and number three, and then he gets all dramatic and he looks at his wife and he says, I want to be recognized for something. I want to be known for something. I want to make my name. And that moment just killed it for me because that's the exact opposite of what Heineck was as a human being. Heineck wasn't in it for recognition. He wasn't in it for fame and fortune and glory. In fact, if he had been in it for those things, signing on to the Air Force's UFO project would have been the worst possible way to gain the kind of recognition he's talking about there. So that moment of the show just really left me cold. I just kind of groaned and I thought, well, if they can't even get this like essential quality of the man, they can't even get that right in the first episode, then there's not much hope 
for the rest of the show. So, so would you say that he wasn't? I mean, if he wasn't interested in in glory, uh, or the glory of it, or you know, making his name, mm-hmm. what were the reasons that you think the the, the real J. Allen Hynek uh, decided to sign on to Project Blue Book? Well, I think those first two reasons he gave in the TV show were correct. He, you know, he wanted to be able to continue teaching, of course, and he loved the idea of making some extra money on a government contract. Um, but he, you know, years later. Uh, in in the 19, late 1960s, when when uh, Dr. Heineck and Jacques Vallée uh, traveled to uh, Denver to to uh, testify or to be interviewed by the Condon Committee at the University of Colorado, um, you know they had a candid talk that Dr. Vallée records in in his memoirs, where they both got to talking about their spiritual asides and how they were interested in the Rosicrucians and. Dr. Heineck was interested in this this philosopher and teacher named Rudolf Steiner, and that's where Heineck said, "You know, I never got into science. I didn't get into science because I wanted to make some great discovery." He said, "I just wanted to explore the edges of science. I wanted to study the things that science can't explain." That's what drove him. That's what his big motivation was. It was a mystery. He loved a mystery, and he thought maybe he could. If not solve it himself, he could at least help solve it, help establish some factual basis for solving it sometime in the future. That's what drove Heineck. That was the real guy. Let's talk, too, about, you know, we mentioned the whole swamp gas thing. Um, and that was a very controversial time in yeah. Jay Allen Heineck's career. Could you speak to that a little bit on how he might have been misinterpreted? Oh yeah, <laughs> there was no because, doubt he was he was misinterpreted. Yeah, right. Because okay. in the series, let me just you know put this out there. Um, uh-huh. I don't know which episode it is. I've been watching all of them, but um, I think it was just last week's episode, the episode called "The Scoutmaster." That was the one where um, Heineck um, in the series talks about swamp gas and is pan for it. And it didn't even take place in Michigan and actually in the series took place in Ohio somewhere, I think. Um, so yeah, they're not even really crossing any T's or dotting any I's really. They're just, uh, had this made up character and they're just, I mean, cause let's just say, you know, it, it has a very X files feel, yeah. There's, you know, mysterious informants, um, you know, possibly like a man in black um, type of informant. Uh, there's a, a government program where uh, GIs are um, being invasively trained uh, to communicate with some alien intelligence, um, you know, some kind of mind control. You mean stuff like stuff that's being put in their heads or they're getting like uh, implants or? Um, it's more like a more like a kind of Manchurian candidate kind of, uh, you know, kind of more of a a psychologically invasive thing um, that leads to their detriment or even an off switch where they can be shown a symbol and then they kill themselves. And Mark, you talk about that in your book, right? Because that's something that Jalen Hanek worked on himself. (laughs) Uh, I got a good good story to tell you about that. Oh, yeah. 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 And one one thing, and Edgar, uh, not, um, and and Dr. Uh, Von Braun is in it um, from Project Paperclip, and uh, he's like he's like a big bad 
in it. Oh, well, he is a. I mean, he was a Nazi. Well, yeah. right. But right. he also but was the father of a space program. So, like, there's I'm not there's sure the good space program, the bad Nazi. Yeah, I'm not sure that Jan, <laughs> John Hynek ever ever knew him, but they have this interaction. Um, yeah, so it, it's all kinds of. And the Soviets are involved. There's all kinds yeah. of crazy historical stuff, like thrown together for the drama of it. So, but first things first. Yeah. Let's go into like as we've used this. Uh, you know, people who use this in the UFO field for years when they say derisively, you know, oh, it's just swamp gas. So, how did J. Allen Hynek start <laughs> that whole thing? Well, um, in in March of 1966, there was a whole rash of UFO sightings in southeastern Michigan. Uh, a whole bunch of law enforcement officers were seeing lights in the sky and giving chase to lights in the sky. Um, but then this one weekend in March, uh, a, f- a farm family that uh, lived out, out in the boonies um, saw some strange lights. Now, depending on which one of them was telling the story and when they were telling the story, they saw some strange lights that were either already settled down in the swamp near the house or they saw lights swoop out of the sky and land in the swamp. It's unclear which story is correct because, like I said, different family members told different versions of that story at different times. But they end up stalking these lights, these strange glowing lights in the swamp near their farm. And the lights, anytime they get close to the lights, the lights disappear and they reappear on the far side of the swamp. So the, this farmer and his son are getting pretty spooked. The family calls in the police. The police comb the whole area. The lights disappear. Nobody knows what happened. The very next night, about 90 miles away at this private college in Hillsdale, Michigan, about almost 100 uh, young women living in the, in the co-ed dorm at Hillsdale College see something almost exactly like the farmer and his family had seen the night before. They see these floating lights out in the, uh, there's a little swamp in the campus arboretum across the street. And so all these women in the dorm are looking at these strange floating lights. They call the county civil defense agent. He comes running over. He alerts the police. They all watch these lights in the swamp for a couple hours. And it's the same thing. Anytime, anytime a light, anytime, say, a car drives by and the headlights shine on the swamp, the, the little swamp lights disappear. Well, this becomes a huge national headline story, a huge story mostly because there were so many witnesses and they all were describing more or less the same kinds of things, floating red, yellow, and green lights um, that rise up and then settle down again and they disappear from one spot and they reappear in another spot. So Heineck is working for Project Blue Book at the time and his boss at Project Blue Book, uh, Hector Cantania, orders him to go to Michigan. And basically Heineck's purpose in going to Michigan is to kill the story, <laughs> find a natural explanation and kill the story. That was that was what the Air Force was paying Heineck to do. So he goes to Michigan. He spends three days there interviewing the students at the college, interviewing the civil defense uh, agent, interviewing the police uh, officers, interviewing all these local college professors. And he doesn't really have an explanation for what's going on. Um, after three days, nothing's really gelling. Uh, a lot of the descriptions of the objects are similar, but, but that's as far as it goes. Nobody really knows what they saw. Nobody can really describe much of anything. Or nobody's descriptions match. So finally, on the, like the third day, Heineck gets told by his boss at the Air Force, 
you're going to hold a press conference tonight in Detroit, and you're going to explain it with natural causes. So Heineck has the uh, press conference. Now, the irony of it is, by this time, Heineck was actually thinking maybe it is something with natural causes because he hasn't found any evidence that it's anything that it's anything solid or that it's any sort of, you know, craft or mode of transportation or anything. So he's going into this press conference thinking that there's probably a natural explanation for this. He just can't prove it. So the press conference starts and Heineck says, well, based on what these witnesses have told me, uh, he says, I think it's, he says, I couldn't prove it in a court of law, but I think it's possible that these people saw swamp gas. Well, all the reporters, you know, start run to the telephones and call in their stories. And they're like, you wouldn't believe it. The nation's number one UFO expert just called the people of Michigan a bunch of kooks. Because he said they couldn't tell the difference between swamp gas and a UFO. Well, Heineck became basically public enemy number one, especially in Michigan. He just slunk right. out of Michigan because everybody was mad at him. Even the Air Force was happy because he had explained it away as a natural event, which is what they wanted him and expected him to do. But the people in Michigan were upset, and the UFO researchers in Heineck's circle of colleagues were really upset. Jacques Vallée was furious with Heineck because um, a lot of people, again, based on the huge number of witnesses, a lot of people really thought, this is the case. This is the big one. This is the case that's going to prove that UFOs are spaceships from another world. And Heineck just destroyed that. So, so the UFO people were, were furious with him. Heineck just couldn't get a break here. So that's the whole, that's the whole swamp, thing, thing, swamp gas thing. Now, I, in my book, I researched the hell out of that story. And it took, it took up two chapters in the book because it was so complicated. But I ended up feeling like Heineck said the right thing. He was such a scientist, he would only go where the facts led him, and he wouldn't go a step beyond that. And where the facts led him in that case was probably or possibly swamp gas. So he did the right, he spoke the truth, what to him was the truth. So in my opinion, that was the right thing to do, even though he disappointed and upset a lot of people. Well, that's the job of science, isn't yeah. it? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing is that objective reality, and here it is. Yeah, right. Exactly. And just you know, even if it's unpopular to say so, and and what can you say regarding that, and and maybe the state of the paranormal today? I mean, uh, have we come further than that, or are we still in that same kind of situation where it's like people want to believe one thing, and if you don't. Like, just go along, you're going to be pilloried. Yeah, I think there's still some of that, but I don't think that's the whole picture, luckily. Um, and I, I think that, I think where a lot of that's still, I might get in trouble for saying this, but... Oh, say it. Where, where, where a lot of that silliness comes in is with groups like, like MUFON. And I can say that because I was a volunteer field investigator for the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON, for about five years while I was researching my book. And there's a lot of very, MUFON says it's a scientific organization, but it's not. There's a lot of very unscientific stuff going on with MUFON that I think is just kind of an, kind of an embarrassment to, to ufology in general. They're not scientific at all. They, they take shortcuts. They take the easy way out. There are a lot of good people in the organization. Some of them. Some, some of, them, of them are yeah. good people. Some of them are. But they're not really accomplishing a whole lot. And I can tell you, 
in my experience with MUFON, I took about a nine-month leave of absence to finish writing my book. And when I joined up again, I went back through my old case files just to sort of, you know, just to get myself up to speed again before I started doing investigations again. And I found that in all these old case files of mine, all my case, my case dispositions had all been changed. Somebody had gone through and changed all my unknowns and insufficient data uh, to to orbs. Oh, I keep man. I keep oh. looking through all these. I keep looking through all these case reports, seeing orbs, orbs, and I'm like, where the hell did the orbs come from? I never said orbs. So I checked in with my, and I had a new state director at this time. So I checked in with her, and she said, well, yeah, I went back through your old case files and I fixed them. I'm like, what are you talking about? You just changed it all to orbs. And she's like, yeah, because they're all orbs. She's like, obviously, you haven't been trained very well, and you don't know anything about orbs, or you would have known that these were all orbs. And by the way, a friend of mine just wrote a book about orbs, and I think you should buy it. That was oh. my that was my MUFON state director telling me that, and I was so annoyed by that that I just quit. I'm like, no, you can't you can't do that. You can't change yeah. you can't change everything to orbs. You can't pressure me to buy somebody's book. That's a, that's a load of that's just a load of hooey. Well, the no. thing is that orbs, orbs have invaded ufology like they invaded the world of ghost hunting. With Because the thing is, we all have digital cameras now. And digital cameras create like, – it's, <laughs> it's just a way it can't just – orbs are everywhere. Oh, it's and ridiculous. Is it because is it because it's the, they're really they're aliens now traveling little orbs through our cameras? No, it's just a new. Well, you have a new kind of camera. Yeah. You didn't get it with a Polaroid, but you get it with your phone camera. Yep. So when somebody's like, when they take a picture of an orb, and they're like, "See, it's my grandma," <laughs> and I'm like, "All right, well, if that's how you want to remember your grandma, that's your that's your business." Yeah, yes. I mean, it's it's hard to to stomach that, um, but, but you but know, it's a good though too. Yeah, well, well, the, the thing is that you know she went through and changed all your conclusions. That's what it sounds like, anyway. And and how can she do that? I mean, she wasn't the investigator on the case. She didn't even read the witnesses. She didn't do anything. Yes, yeah, it was all a judgment call on her part. So yeah, I was pretty. And I I complained to the higher ups at Mufon, and nothing happened. Nothing got done about it. So I was that was why I quit. But you had asked though. You would ask though, Allison, if it's if ufology is all like that these days, and I'm happy to say no, it's not because there are some really good, serious researchers. I mean, just people like you two, Mike and Allison, you two with your podcast, you two are doing serious researchers, research researching. Yeah, we're researching. There are there are a lot of new people entering the field that are doing really good work. There's also this awesome group of people. I call them the I call them the Council of Elders. This group of people led by uh, Michael Swords, a hit, retired history professor in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Have you guys ever met yes. Michael? Uh, I a, haven't. I haven't met him, but I've heard I've heard of him. And uh, if he, I mean, if he's from the zoo, yeah, right. We got to trust him a little bit. <laughs> well, and I well, um I he, have a, a book that he did with with uh, a number of uh, researchers yeah, on the government it's UFOs. It's great. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, so Michael has like semi-annual gatherings at his home in Kalamazoo with a whole bunch of the people who 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 collaborated on that book, UFOs and Government, and that's a that's a bunch of really really smart, thoughtful um, UFO investigators who 
you know, operate the way Dr. Hynek did. They only look at the facts. They don't go any, they don't go one step further than the facts will, you know, lead them. So there are an awful lot of people like that too, who are doing really serious work. So there's a lot to be optimistic about. There's a lot of, there's a lot of bad stuff, but there's also a lot to be optimistic about in UFO research. So we, we shouldn't lose heart then. We should just, uh, keep, keep on, uh, believing, right? (laughs) Yeah. yeah. And, And it, and it's, well, it, 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 and there's there are things to still be discovered with old cases, but there are also new cases. I mean, I in my time at MUFON, I came across a couple of cases that, in my head, they're still unsolved, and they are still open cases that some someday I hope I will have the resources to investigate further, because I've heard a couple of stories from witnesses through MUFON that really kind of blew me away. I think we've got at least one of those stories in our original interview we did with you, uh, the two-parter from 2015, I believe we have we have like the diary of a MUFON investigator. Yeah, where yeah. We talked for an hour yeah, about that, so I'm right. going to put that in the show notes, and you <laughs> okay. can, you guys can take a listen to yeah. some of Mark's greatest hits <laughs> uh, from the real life case files of Mark O'Connell. Well, let me ask, um, you know, about that in reference to Heineck and Project Blue Book. So, you know, there are people who talk about him starting out as a skeptic and then transitioning into, you know, opening his mind to UFOs uh, as having some kind of objective reality. I want you to speak to that, Mark, and also... um, what if he did make a transition like that? You know, what did it? I mean, what mm-hmm. what made him, you know, come from, you know, change from like a, a person who was out there just being a government naysayer, uh, an apologist to to somebody who was really a, an advocate for the serious study of UFOs? Well, I'm glad we just talked about the swamp gas case, because that's actually kind of a good segue to, to my answer to that question. Um, a lot of people ask me, you know, what was the moment at which Heineck changed his mind? And I always say, well, it's not that simple. It wasn't a moment. It was a process that took place over kind of a long period of time. Where it started was um, Dr. Heineck was originally hired to, to be a consultant on Project Sign, which was the Air Force's first UFO study group. Um, and Heineck was under contract to Project Sign for, I, I think, about six months in the 1948-49 time, time frame. And all he did was he was teaching, he was teaching astronomy at Ohio State in uh, Columbus. And once or twice a month, he would drive over to Dayton to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where Project Sign was headquartered. And he'd sit down at his desk, and they'd put a stack of UFO reports in front of him, like I described before. And he would just go through case by case and say, well, that was Venus. Well, that was clearly Arcturus. Well, that was most likely a comet. Well, that was probably an airplane with the sun reflecting off of it. And Heineck was really good at explaining most of those UFO reports. But there was always about 20% left over that he couldn't explain. And he was good enough of a scientist to say, you know what? I can't explain it. I don't know what this is. There aren't enough facts for me to actually offer a theory. So those that 20% always got left, sort of left aside. But Heineck always thought, well, if we had more time and money, we could probably um, figure out what those other 20% were too. And they were probably, you know, misidentifications also. So that was kind of the way Heineck looked at it. He thought, he thought an 80%, you know, success rate was pretty good. Well, so he finished his time with Project Sign, went back to teaching, 
uh, Project Sign turned into Project Grudge, and then Project Grudge turned into Project Blue Book, at which point the new project chief, um, Captain Edward Ruppelt, uh, enlisted Heineck to come back in and join the, join the UFO study again, now Project Blue Book. Now, why do they call it Project Blue Book? Ruppelt said in his book that it, he, was, he compared it to a college exam. A big blue book that has lots of tough questions in it. That, okay. That's how yeah, that's how that's how Rupel. Because I guess back in the day, a, a college exam, a standard a college college exam, was in a huge blue book cover. Um, yeah. No, we had we had blue books when I was in college too. Me too. So I, I, yeah. So that's well, I, a, that I must that, that must have been a thing. I wonder what that says about me. Anyway, <laughs> so now it's Project Blue Book. They bring by Heineck back in. Because they say, we still need a scientific consultant to explain these things to us. And Heineck starts looking at, now he's looking at like the past three years of UFO reports. And now it's a pretty big pile of reports. And he's looking through this and he starts checking, you know, didn't doing what he did before. Okay, that was Venus. That was a, that was a, a meteor shower. And when he's all done, he's still left with a stack of 20% of the case files that he can't explain, that don't make any sense. And he looks at that and he just thinks, wow. So when, and when he first worked for Project Sign, he thought it was a fad. He thought it would die out within a couple of months. So here he is three years later and he's thinking, okay, not only has this fad not died out, it's still going strong, but there's still this consistent 20% of reports that I can't explain. And that's what really piqued his curiosity as a scientist. He thought, aha, here's a mystery. I want to understand why this is happening this way. So that's when he started calling for serious scientific study of UFOs. It doesn't mean he changed his mind from a skeptic to a believer. He, he was still kind of both, actually, at that point. But he thought that the only way we could know for sure was if we studied the phenomenon properly. So over the years, Heineck just spoke out more and more and more about the need for a scientific study of UFOs. And by the time he got to that infamous swamp gas case in 1966, that was when Heineck said, you know what, I'm done, I'm done carrying water for the Air Force. I'm just going to do things my way from here on out. He still worked for the Air Force for a couple more years, but they totally parted ways. And he just, he just basically said, you know what, I'm, I'm not just going to keep saying that there's nothing to this. I'm not going to try, I'm not going to keep, you know, selling the Air Force's official line that there's nothing going on here. He says, there is something going on, and we really need to understand it. So that's, that was kind of the whole process of him changing his mind. Why do you think the Air Force would want to poo-poo everything so quickly? Like, what's, you know, I, I can see the reasons why they'd be interested in, you know, making people think that we had reverse-engineered alien technology, making the Soviets think that we had, like, alien death rays and things <laughs> like that on our team during the Cold War. But, um, you know, what would be the point of them just saying, you know, is it just, was it a matter of control that, you know, don't worry about it, guys. We have control over the skies, over the U.S. Or, what, you know, why did they, why did they want to shut down the idea that there was something we didn't know? Well, I think you just made a really good point, Mike. I think the, you know, the Air Force's number one job is to keep our, our airspace safe from enemies, from invasion. And here's this, this phenomenon that keeps appearing at will all over the country, all the time. And Air Force pilots can't run them down. They can't shoot them down. They can't get a good read on them. They can't identify them. They're all, the Air Force, every time there's a big UFO case, the Air Force ends up looking 
kind of stupid and kind of <laughs> ineffectual, and that's a huge embarrassment to them. So I think that is a huge, huge reason for it. Um, but I also think, you know, Heineck had this really interesting comment. Somebody asked him once, do you think the government was covering up something about UFOs? And Heineck said, well, maybe. He said, but there are two kinds of cover-ups. He goes, you can cover up knowing something, and you can cover up not knowing something. And he said, I think in the case of the Air Force, they're covering up not knowing anything. Because, again, it's an embarrassment to them. How could they still not know anything about UFOs after all this time? So either way you look at it, that they're covering up something they know because it scares the living crap out of them. Right. And, again, because it makes them look useless and ineffectual, it's either that or they're covering up the fact that they don't know anything because that also makes them look weak and ineffectual. So either way, it's a bad deal for the Air Force. They have to basically the Air Force has to just come up with a cover story and stick with it just for the sake of their reputation. Well, you bring up a good point there. In the, in the first episode of the TV show called The Fuller Dogfight, it's based on the Gorman dogfight that happened in, in 1948 and it's, you know, there you have uh, somebody with the North Dakota, you know, National Guard chasing down UFOs and, you know, not being able to catch it. And the thing flies over the plane, at, you know, a ball of light at incredible speed and, and, and all that stuff. And then, uh, so they have, you know, they, they talk about it in the show. And now, Allison, you were at the premiere, right? Yeah. Of the Chicago premiere Project Blue Book? Yes. And that's the episode that they showed the pilot. And so you dressed up like Jalen Hynek, like in cosplay. There, you brought a horror, like you had the, like a Van Dyke beard oh, nice. and the whole deal. And <laughs> that, yeah, that's that's right. We, I mean, you can you can even tell who was who because we're all dressed up like Jalen Hynek. And they had some people. <laughs> they had some people from the show there too, though, right? Yeah, they did. And was Jalen Hynek's son there? I think right? yes. Peter Hynek was there. Yes, yes, he was. Okay, so th- that gives the idea that. I mean, unlike Green Book, speaking of another colored book that just came out, a movie that just came out, uh, it has the imprimatur of the family approving that made it sound like the family approves of the show, right? right. I mean, was, right. was the son like, this is sweet, makes my dad look like a rock star. You know? Yeah. I mean, he was all for it. And I, it, it's just hard because I think when the public watches shows like this and, you know, the they tell you that it's based on the tr- a true story and it's based on the case files of Jay Allen Hynek. You, you really think that there's a lot more truth in there. And yeah. I, I think lay like, people, they just don't, you know, they're not going to know the things that we know about these cases. So, so they, they're just going to think that, you know, all this wild stuff is the truth. And yeah. and that was really the way that it was presented in, at the premiere. And I was a guest of uh, Chicago MUFON, and that, that's why I got to uh-huh. be there, is because my friends from Chicago MUFON invited me. And she's an orb apologist. No, I'm not. And actually, <laughs> actually uh, Sam Moranto, the, the director of uh, Illinois MUFON, um, he, he and I have both gotten in a lot of trouble over this Mothman thing that, you know, that we are dogmatic skeptics or, you know, I'm trying to make my name as a skeptic just because I won't go along with anything certain people say, uh, you know, the main 
purveyors of these cases. That's you know, bad. I'm attacked, and he is too. And well, he, Sam's not trying to sell a book. No, the, I think the difference is you're a little less dogmatic uh, or whatever um, when you don't have a narrative to push, or the narrative you're trying to push is the truth. Yes, but but yeah, my point my point is that you know I'm not being dogmatic. I am I am really just I think doing what an investigator is supposed to do and you got to follow the facts. And even if you don't like where they lead, I mean, I wanted to find a monster, not monstrous tactics, you know, or, (laughs) you know, an embarrassment of research. I mean, you know, I, I, I didn't want to find that. And, 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 um, you know, I just wanted to say that Sam Moranto, I mean, he has done like the, a lot of tedious work to, to, um, to, see if he could vet some of those cases. You know, he, he was the one who, who said, Hey, a lot of these cases are coming from the same IP and, and Hey, uh, you know, the moon phases don't match up, you know, with what the witness reported or the weather is inconsistent. I, you know, he, he's my source for a lot of that. And then, you know, my, my uh, contribution is, is just, you know, that on the ground reporting boots on the ground. And, uh, you're like the weather bunny. Well, <laughs> yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I'm a paranormal bunny there, but, but no, I mean, I think you just have to get boots on the ground. If, if, and why wouldn't people want to do that? It's, it's sad to say that I'm the only researcher who's been to all the 2011, all the two. 2017 locations why why aren't more people if, if there's really a monster wanting to get out there and and visit all these locations but but anyway that aside i you know i just wanted to say that you know sam moranto um he, he is one of those great people um involved in mufon but the way that it was presented um you know by by the history channel is uh, at that premiere is that this is the real deal and um, that's sad that that it isn't. Yeah. yeah, you know what that what that's exactly what I found really um, upsetting about the show when when I started to learn how they were approaching the topic. I was getting really really upset that 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 they were taking that fictional approach because I thought, oh great, I've just spent I've just spent the last you know five six years researching Dr. Hynek's life so that I could tell the true story of his pioneering work. And now this TV show is going to come along and millions of people are going to watch it and think, oh, that's what it was really like. And and then the true story would just sort of fall through the cracks and be forgotten. But I'm happy to say, you guys, so the show's been on what, like six or seven weeks now? Yeah. Yeah. Since the show's been on, I've been seeing signs that the exact opposite is happening that people are watching the show and yeah enjoying it for what it is whether that's good or bad but then but then after the show is done thinking well okay obviously obviously that's not the real story and a lot of people seem to be interested enough that they're trying to learn the real story and they're looking for Heineck's books and through Heineck's books very often they're ending up looking at my book so I'm starting to get the impression just over the last two months since the show was on that a lot of people are finding their way to my book who might not have even known about it before. So I'm kind of hopeful that, you know, I'm, I'm pushing back a little. I'm at least, I'm getting through to some part of that audience and, and telling them the true story. So that's encouraging for me. The story I wanted to tell earlier, though, uh, 
I, I just got to tell you this because I think it's really yeah, funny. Yeah, please do. So n- people are starting to come to me as like the official Heineken Blue Book fact checker now, which I'm also really enjoying. <laughs> but one of the first instances of that was like two or three episodes into the show, uh, Leslie Keen contacted me. And Leslie Keen, oh, cool. I'm sure I'm sure a lot of your listeners know Leslie Keen is a journalist who wrote, wrote that awesome book, UFOs, um, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record. I think I got that title mm-hmm. right. Well, Leslie did me a solid. She wrote a wonderful cover blurb for my book. And so so last or January, she contacts me and she says, Hey, Mark, I'm doing a story in the New York Times about the Blue Book show. Um, can you just do some fact-checking for me? And I said, Sure. I owe you a favor. I'm happy to help. So she, she sends me this list of questions, obviously taken from the TV show, because she had already seen like the first five or six episodes uh, with her you know, press access. So she sends me this list of questions. And the first question is, did Dr. Hynek ever survive a plane crash um, after trying to reenact a UFO, an aerial UFO encounter? And I said, nope, that's a no. <laughs> and the, the second question was, did Dr. Hynek ever come face to face with an alien body floating in a tank of green liquid? And I was like, no, that <laughs> never happened. And then, okay, so third question was, uh, did Dr. Hynek ever meet Werner von Braun? And yes. for that question, I had to say, well, that's a maybe, because Hynek did work a lot at White Sands, um, developing the payloads for the V2 rockets that we launched, uh, that we had brought back from Germany at the end of World War II as part of payloads. Ah. So Hynek had played a big part in selecting those payloads. So I said, yeah, it's even though von Braun was in Huntsville and Hynek was in White Sands in New Mexico, it's possible and probable that he would have crossed paths with von Braun or, or some of the, the, the Germans, the Pienemunders. So I said, that's a maybe. Okay, question four. Did a UFO witness ever douse himself with gasoline and set himself on fire <laughs> while Dr. Hynek was interviewing him? And I was like, what? <laughs> that happens in the show? Are you kidding? Yeah. Oh, my God. I was like, that's a big, big no. That never happened. And, you know, and that's just one instance. The two In the two and a half episodes I saw, I saw a UFO witness hurl himself from a second-story window to kill himself because the man in black pressured him to. It's like, oh, my God. Not only are they just making stuff up, they're throwing so many... They're throwing so many bits and pieces of UFO, UFO lore and mythology into the mix. Oh, yeah. If they just I mean, got renewed for a second season, I don't think yeah. there's any material left over for a second <laughs> season. They're chewing it up so fast. They're making it look like if you see a UFO, it's kind of being like a teenager that has sex in a horror movie. <laughs> you know? That's right. It's your death warrant. Like, uh-oh. And then every week now, every week, like, Jalen Hynek gets beat up or shot at or something like that. I mean, he's always in mortal danger. Plus, he's psychic. He's psychic. Don't you love that? Oh, man. That's that's why I shut off the third episode halfway through. Because there was a vehicle involved. There's a pickup truck. And Hynek touches the pickup truck. And he has flashes of the UFO experience. And they did that in a previous episode where he touched the fighter plane and he had flashes of the UFO encounter. I'm like, yeah, that's that's portraying him as being psychic. And that is definitely yeah, that's not- a dead zone. Yeah. And, the- and then well- there's the lesbian Russian agent trying to seduce Mrs. Heineck. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> that, yeah. that's, 
Oh, man, that's, that's stop a lot of I got, fun too. I got to stop. It's just too much. I mean, they've got all the tropes to to increase uh, watchability. Um, yeah, and like people are getting murdered. The next door neighbor got murdered. What they're missing out on here. That I think they can really, like, like, Allison, you were saying it when you're talking about the like the the work that Sam was doing with the faces of the moon and the weather reports and things. And Mark, you were talking about how Heineck would look for all the astronomical data that he'd go through the charts and be like, okay, could this be a planet? Could this be a star? You know, it was the you what you saw was the planet Venus. To quote uh, Jesse the Body Ventura in that X Files episode, Jose <laughs> Chung. <laughs> No, but the thing is, they go. He go through, and you find a way to debunk it. You find the most, uh, you know, obvious thing that it could be first. I mean, that's obviously the the Occam's razor. I remember uh, reading a quote from Jay Anson while he was, you know, or after he had finished Amityville Horror, he said that people had brought that kind of scrutiny to Amityville Horror. And he's like, ah, you know, phases of the moon, weather. It doesn't, you know, he, he acted like it doesn't really matter to him because he was just going off audio tapes anyway when he was writing the book. Like he didn't interview anybody. And just uh, that shocked me because it's the idea that he wouldn't try to be as accurate as possible right. in creating a narrative that people would be considering be a, a true story. And I just wanted to kind of get to that. So, Mark, I feel like there's a missed opportunity in the TV show to show that scientific scrutiny that uh, Heineck kind of developed because would you say that he taught us how to study UFOs? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to describe it. Um, and, and it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just the field reporting and gathering evidence. And a lot of it was the human factor. Heineck, Heineck, was, Heineck was really um, empathetic and really in tune with the psychological aspect of the UFO experience. When he was talking to witnesses, you know, he... He'd, and one way to put it is he developed a really good uh, bullet detector. But yeah. but the opposite side of that is he also developed a really good sincerity detector as well. You know, so Heineck really, um, he considered the human element in a UFO event as just as important as any of the physical data. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's a really shrewd observation. That was exactly the way he approached it. And the funny is, so the, the way they show that in the TV show is he touches a truck and has you yeah. know, flashes yeah, of the UFO it's encounter. It's a flashback, like, yeah, whatever. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty well-developed BS detective. That's just a full-blown psychic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, hey, I have to mention, too, another thing that uh, J. Allen Hynek did in the series was um, – Steel classified uh, alien material, and uh, it since has caused, you know, wreaked havoc because it's a mystery, mystery object uh, made out of some mystery metal. But um, I, you know, I wanted to to just get back to uh, Werner von Braun a little bit there. So that's a, a little bit of maybe some truth in it, although. Yeah. Um, von Braun, you know, he was a Nazi, you know, I don't want to minimize that, but, but in project blue book, he's kind of, you know, some kind of big, bad, uh, like he's the boys from Brazil type kind of guy. Well, well, yeah, he's, he's, he's kind of like a, a mastermind of, of a reverse engineering, um, alien craft. That's what they make him out to be in the series. And, you know, to, and, you know, testing these craft, 
on uh, military pilots, you know, regardless of the ethics. So, you know, that's that's how he's represented uh, in the series. But it's interesting to think that they, they might have met. But, you know, in, in the series, he tried to offer Jay and Hynek a job and his, you know, his shadowy department that he's running and stuff like that. So, um, but what I wanted to get to, Mark, is if you were put in charge of the show, what cases? And you've written scripts before, so that's not even out of the. Yeah. Like, that's not even like that. That could happen. <laughs> right. Like they could Absolutely. call you up and be like, "Hey, uh, we have some funding here, and we're we're done being full of it. So why don't you come on the show?" <laughs> and so, that could happen. You. Oh, actually, that was all junk. Before we're gonna get to the real deal. So it's so a reboot. Let Let's um, talk about some of the most compelling cases that uh, Heineck ran into. Um, that you you might know about. Well, the way I tried to present things in my book is the way I would I think I would want to present things in a, in a TV script or a screenplay, and that is, I I I wanted to present each of these UFO events as if it really happened. You know, I didn't want to make any judgment about. You know, I'm exa- I'm exaggerating. I'm twisting the facts. I I wanted to present each event through the eyewitnesses testimony i mean i basically i would have three sources the testimony of the witness or witnesses um reports in local media of the time local newspapers tv reports stuff like that and then for a lot of the cases the third source of of information would be um the project sign or project grudge or project blue book file so those would be my three sources of information for each event, the three main ones. Sometimes there were other ones also. And using using the information from those three main sources, I I would try to knit together, um, you know, a very uh, a portrayal of the UFO event that looked as though it really did happen, um, at least from the viewpoint of the witness that it really did happen, and then let the reader sort of tag along with Heineck as he investigates the case and come and then the reader can come to their own conclusion whether they agree with Heineck or don't agree with Heineck. That was how I tried to present everything in the book. Um, and I've gotten lots of comments from from readers and reviewers that you know that appreciate that approach. So I know it's a good approach. So if I was working on the show, that would be that would be my approach. Just say don't don't sensationalize it. You don't need to sensationalize it. It's already so damn sensational. You don't need to sensationalize it. Portray it exactly as it was experienced by the witness without any judgment, without any exaggeration, and let you know, let the audience decide whether who what they think really happened. Well, just thinking of that, I had a cool idea. Like that, that idea, Mark, I love the way you're talking about it. And obviously, your book is awesome, and I recommend it to everybody. Close Encounters, man, the... the the link's going to be in the show notes, otherside.podcast.com slash 238. But you just get, like, I was just thinking for a second, Mark, there, that the, like a Rashomon type of thought where you have the, oh, yeah. the, the first, the first section is how the witness reported it. Uh-huh. And that can be the, like, that can be the craziest one, you know, possible. It can be like the way that it's sensationalized. Then you have the Air Force version or whatever with, that shows it from the perspective of completely, uh, natural causes yeah. or made up or things like that. And then you have like the Heineck report, mm-hmm. um, which may be a mixture of the two yeah. kind of things. So you have, you have different perspectives coming in the same things unfold, but just, 
uh, you know, here's the the far out version. Here's the skeptics version, and then here's probably what's closer to the truth. So well, a very meta approach, yes, as my, in the, the X Files episode, Jose Chung. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, not uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was just going to say I'm actually working on. I can't say too much about it, but I'm working on a project that's going to sort of encompass this exact approach that we're talking about right now. Oh, yes. But, but Allison, Excellent. I, I still I'm going to watch it. I hope so. <laughs> well, it, whenever, 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 uh, whenever I can talk about it, I'd be happy to come back on the show and talk about it, but, that would be but, great. but not Fantastic. quite yet. But I wanted to get back to what Allison said though, about like significant cases to Heineck. I, th- I think the biggest case to Heineck was the Lonnie Zamora case in Socorro, New Mexico in 1965. Um, It was, he had had a credible witness. There was physical evidence. It was a close encounter of the third kind, which was always big. And Heineck wasn't always really comfortable with close encounters of the third kind, even though he coined the term. Right. He wasn't always comfortable with the idea of, of, of occupants, UFO occupants. But he, but he did like close encounters of the second kind because they involved physical evidence. So anytime there was f- the possibility of physical evidence, then that case automatically had high scientific value to Heineck. So that, and that totally describes the Zamora case. It involved this traffic cop in a small town in New Mexico. And by the way, this small town in New Mexico is like a stone's throw away from White Sands Missile Base. Um, El Magardo, you know, all of our sensitive nuclear nuclear weapons bases, a couple of Holloman Air Force Base, you know, all, all of these places are really close around this town, Socorro. So this traffic cop's chasing down a speeder, and he and he sees a flash of light off in the hills and hears a big explosion. He knows there's an old dynamite shack somewhere out there. So he thinks somebody blew up the dynamite shack. So he stops tailing the speeder and he steers off road into the, into the gravel and goes up this hill and he finds a little valley. And at the bottom of the valley, there's what looks like an overturned car. So he thinks, Oh, somebody had an accident. So he, he stops his squad car. He gets out. He starts scrambling down this arroyo to, to get to the car. And then he gets closer and he realizes, Oh, that's not a car. It's a big silver egg shaped thing standing on some landing gear and there are two little people next to it, and they are little, because he compares them in size to the nearby shrubbery, and they look like they are just—they are very small adults or very large children, and they're wearing white coveralls. Well, um, they notice him. These occupants notice Officer Zamora. They kind of jump in surprise, which which is something you should never do in front of a policeman. But they <laughs> right. they jump in surprise. And so these two things disappear back inside the egg and flames shoot out from the bottom of it. Zamora is terrified, so he scrambles back up the hill to his car. His glasses fall off. He hides behind his car. This thing blasts off and then shoots off along the horizon and disappears into the distance. Well, Zamora gets on his radio and calls in for backup. And a little while later, a state patrolman shows up, this guy named Sam Chavez, Shows up and he finds Lonnie Zamora is practically in a state of shock. He's pale. He's sweating. Um, he 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 looks like he's seen a ghost. So he tells the story to Chavez, and they go down the hillside. And guess what they find? They find three landing landing pad imprints in the dirt, and they find a bush that's been burned up. 
where this thing had landed. So it be, again, this is one of those cases that like instantly instantly becomes a national headline story. You got a credible witness, you got physical evidence. It's an ideal UFO case. And of course, eventually Project Blue Book sends Heineck down to New Mexico to interview Zamora. And Heineck is by the time Heineck gets there, already like two or maybe three days have passed. So there's not much uh, left of the landing pad imprints because so many people have been picking over this site and you know probably taking rocks home for souvenirs and stuff. So mm. there's not a whole lot of physical evidence left by the time Heineck gets there, but um, but he spends a lot of time with Officer Zamora and is just totally impressed because he just sees Officer Zamora as just a real no nonsense by the book, you know, like a Joe Friday cop, just the facts, ma'am, <laughs> which of course Heineck respects because he's that way too. So that, that is the big one. And I, I know for a fact that one of Heineck's colleagues once told me that that was definitely one of his most important cases. Um, another one would be the coin, the coin helicopter case of 1973. Heineck, didn't have a chance to investigate that case right away. That was after Blue Book. So Heineck was operating on his own finances. So he wasn't able to meet with the helicopter crew until sometime after the incident. But he also thought that case was kind of one of the gold standards of UFO research. Because again, you had impeccable witnesses. Um, they all testified exactly the same way. Basically, they were in an army helicopter. A strange craft came zooming towards them. The pilot goes into a crash dive, potentially fatal crash dive. The next thing they know, this weird thing is hovering in front of their helicopter, and it's pulling them back up like they're they're ascending at like 2,000 feet per minute, which is impossible for a helicopter. And then the thing shoots off, and the hel- and the helicopter crew go back to their base and land and just wonder what the hell just happened. That was an awesome case, too, and Heineck was really, really interested in that. I would say those are my top two as far yeah. as really, really big cases for Heineck. And that was multiple witnesses in that case. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, so that, those are that's really compelling. Best. Yeah, and, and also they had nothing to uh, nothing to gain from that and everything to lose. Yeah, everything to lose, yeah. And you can't say they were crazy or delusional because they were they were flying home in the helicopter from having had their annual their annual physicals. So they had just gotten clean bills of health from the Air Force. So you know there was nothing wrong with those guys. I love the Lonnie Zamora story because it makes me immediately think of when you think of, when you said large children or small adults that he saw in, in New Mexico, it makes me think about that Annie Jacobson book about Area 51 that came out a few years yeah. ago. Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Where she said that Roswell was the Soviet plot and actually Joseph Stalin had grabbed Dr. Mengele. Like, so we grabbed Werner von Braun yeah. in uh-huh. the Operation Paperclip, but the Soviets got at some Nazis too. And they get the angel of death Dr. Mengele, and he does genetic manipulation to create like these grotesque child-sized aviators or whatever, like alien-like children to create unrest. And as a as a propaganda thing in America, uh, the Soviets did the Roswell crash. And immediately I thought it was like, well, maybe Lonnie Zamora stumbled into some kind of Soviet propaganda. Uh, and those were part of Dr. Mengele's like mutant children. <laughs> um, that he saw with the, you know, with, with the tiny kids. And I just, uh, I thought about that there. And those are two amazing cases. And I remember the first time I heard about the, uh, 
you know, the, the, the helicopter case, the, uh, the coin case, because there are people that we trust with weapons. There are people that, you know, that, that pilots and stuff like that, they have to be, you know, you're thinking about people who have, who have lives in other people's hands. And for multiple people of those to like make it up is, it just wouldn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, it's very hard to believe. So that those are the kind of cases that are, are really exciting. And you can read about more of cases like that and how Dr. Hynek investigated them in Mark's book, The Close Encounters Man. And so we want everybody to check that out. And Mark, once again, we want to thank you for joining us for today. Yeah, hey, thank you so thanks. much. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time coming. Let's let's not wait yes. so long before we do it again. Yes. No. Uh, um. Uh, we, we'd love to have you on. Again. Whenever you hear of an interesting UFO story and want to get something off your chest about it, so to speak, <laughs> you're more than welcome uh, to come to see you on the other side and let them have it. You guys, in two weeks, I'm going to this scientific conference on anomalous aerospace phenomena in Huntsville, Alabama. Ooh. So maybe I can report back to you on that. Oh, and yes. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to mention, uh, I'm glad you mentioned uh, Huntsville because um, that was one of the most interesting parts of uh, the Project Blue Book series is when um, Heineck means Bernard Von Braun, he, he goes to Huntsville, Alabama, and then, you know, they really portray how Hunt- Huntsville became this little Germany um, in response to recruiting all these um, ex-Nazis from Project a paperclip, and I, I didn't know if that was true, but they essentially show show the town like taken over, um, and and uh, you know remade into like a little Germany. They're selling pretzels on the street, uh, <laughs> you know, girls I, girls with blonde braids and so forth. Well, I tell you what, I'll keep my eyes open when I'm in Huntsville in two weeks, and I'll report back to you. I'll let yeah, you know. Yeah, I will hear I'll all about it. Little Germany or not. Right. And that I, sounds perfect. I want to hear, too, about your the secret project that you're working on whenever you can reveal it to us. All right. Will do. One of the things that we were talking about with Mark is the idea that the truth just isn't good enough and people want to have things jazzed up or made super exciting or over-dramatized uh, in order to make their viewing experience more excited, like they're doing with the real story of J. Allen Hynek for the fictional Project Blue Book TV series. Well, the problem with that is the further you get away from the truth when you say something is based on a true story, the easier it is to manipulate the narrative and make people believe things that aren't really true or even related to the facts. So that's the idea behind this week's song called Disinformation Nation. Now, you'll be able to take a listen to that on our Spotify playlist. That's a song of the week. Patreons, of course, get the song um, in a physical copy available right in the Patreon group. And you guys can join the Patreon group by going to othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Those are the people that support the podcast financially. And with that, we have a hangout. We have a group to discuss uh, paranormal themes. A lot of our Patreons suggest episode topics and titles and help us out with the content on See You on the Other Side podcast. Quick shout out to Dr. Ned. He's at the Patreon level where he gets a shout out in every single episode. Thank you for your support, Dr. Ned. It was great seeing you at the show this Thursday in Sauk City. It was really good to see you. Now, anybody else, uh, we will be in Austin, Texas. Uh, this weekend, you have a chance to see some live music on Saturday at Hops and Grain, our paranormal rock and roll music live in Austin, Texas during South by Southwest at Hops and Grain on Saturday at Music Madness 
ATX. We're also going to be doing some live streaming and some ghost hunting and things like that. So make sure you check out our Facebook.com, Facebook.com slash Other Side Podcast. We'll have some special live streams for the Patreons and live streams for everybody as well. Um, so we might be a little bit late on next week's podcast because of that, because we'll be traveling through Texas, but we'll have some brand new and really interesting stuff for you when we come back. So We'll talk to you next week, and thank you very much for listening. Remember, if you're interested in supporting the podcast with just a couple of bucks a month and getting on the Hangout and MP3s to the music and everything like that, othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. What happens with UFO people? Do they call it swamp gaslighting?